Hello everyone, I'm Patty Murphy. Thank you for listening. This is the first anniversary of the On SI podcast, a show we launched in April of 2020. Staten Island is all too often the forgotten borough, but not here on this show. Thanks to Tom and Suzanne Crimmins, the owners of Tom Crimmins Realty, we are able to continue to share local Staten Island stories from Tottenville to Tompkinsville and everywhere in between. Tom Crimmins Realty is an independent, family-run business that knows how important it is to foster strong, community-minded neighborhoods. To that end, if you have a positive story you would like us to share here, let our team know about it. Email us at stories at onsi.nyc. Now, on to this month's show. Straight ahead on this April 2021 edition of On SI. The pandemic has many rethinking travel plans this summer, but staycationing doesn't mean you have to scratch natural wonders off your seasonal to-do list. Why many islanders have their sights set on exploring New York's largest remaining forest land. A year ago, Staten Islanders were just coming to grips with the effects of COVID-19 on daily life. As we all grappled with the aftermath of this new virus, Local business owners were some of the first to feel its impact and offer assistance where they could. A progress report from one borough favorite who is weathering the ongoing storm. And this episode's Local Hero of the Month is a uniformed leader who goes above and beyond the call of duty to better serve the Staten Island community he and his family call home. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. We begin this month with how the COVID-19 pandemic has drastically altered travel plans for most Staten Islanders. And while many won't board planes or travel abroad, there is one summer staycation that is gaining more attention in a borough known for its expansive green spaces. On SI's Joe Malvasio has more. Staten Island's Greenbelt isn't just notable because of its distinction as New York City's last standing forest. At four times the size of Manhattan Central Park, the Greenbelt has 2,800 acres with 35 miles of trails, educational centers, open space, a golf course, and a slew of other recreational options. Whether it's the Carousel or the High Rock Park, uh, Moses Mountain, Lake Orbach, come on out, enjoy the trails. It's a wonderful place to be. Steve Kane, the executive director of the Greenbelt Conservancy, the not-for-profit that works directly with the city to care for the preserve, that typically welcomes about a million people annually, said the Greenbelt has certainly been extra busy during the pandemic. He expects the same this summer at its parks and facilities that crisscross the Mid-Island from Bullshead and Tote Hill in the north to Richmond Town and Oakwood in the south. For more Staten Islanders than ever before, the Greenbelt became their, their new living room, their classroom, their office, their gym, uh, their quiet place, e- even their gathering place. And throughout the pandemic, the Greenbelt has served so many members of the community as a place to continue to make memories and celebrate life. Kane said with more locals discovering what makes the Greenbelt so special, it's important that people pitch in and help keep this natural resource thriving for future generations. Years ago, I heard a, a New York City Parks Commissioner say that even if I had an army of park maintenance workers, which the Parks Department certainly does not have, but even if they did, they couldn't keep the parks clean. It it really depends on stewards and volunteers coming out and caring for their parks, and the Greenbelt is no exception. 
When we launched the On SI podcast in 2020, one of our first interviews we conducted was with James McBratney, the owner of the popular Jimmy Max Pizzeria on Watchog Road in Westerly. A year later, we checked back in with McBratney to get his perspective after a year of uncertainty and unprecedented challenges. It's so great to have you back on the show, and I'm so glad we're able to reconnect. Me too. The last time we spoke was a year ago in April 2020, and I remember at that time talking about the uncertainty surrounding the COVID-19 outbreak, how you were pivoting to serve patrons and the island's essential workers, as well as the mindset needed to survive the challenges of owning a restaurant during this time. So can you recall what you were feeling during that season for our listeners? Sure. When it first came about, and uh, Governor Cuomo announced uh, only essential businesses would be opening, I wasn't entirely sure that my restaurant would be an essential business. I had no idea. So at the time, I felt like, you know, my survival, my livelihood was in his hands. And it was a very, very uh, helpless feeling. Um, but when, once they said that restaurants were among the essential businesses, we then had to start, you know, taking servers and turning them into delivery drivers. Um, we, we reassigned people uh, to answer phones. Patty, we were really, really fortunate. We, we, our delivery and, and takeout business doubled. Mm. When, you know, with, so my patrons really stuck by me. Uh, we're, we're, you know, a, a very, an integral part of the neighborhood, I like to think. We're there 32 years now. Right. And I feel like, you know, people were really looking out for my survival. You know, that was really nice to know. I had a meeting with my kitchen staff, letting them know that I might have to furlough some of the employees, maybe do a week on and a week off, depending on how busy pizza was, or maybe pizza would be busy, but the, you know, the food side wouldn't be busy. And that meeting lasted about an hour. And I said, listen, I'm going to do the best I can to make sure everybody gets a paycheck. Mm -hmm. And um, the next night was a, a Friday and we did over 200 pickups and deliveries. And then I said, well, I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> it's so amazing to think back to, you know, how we were feeling a year ago. One of the things that stands out in my memory about that time and you specifically is that not only were people patronizing the restaurant, but they were doing so by ordering food to be delivered to hospitals, right? They weren't even yes. ordering it to be brought home to themselves or their families. And that's that's that that time where we were all sort of quote alone together that I like to remember. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. Back on. Yeah, but it is true. I think people who were doing fine, let's say it was, um, uh, I mean, fine financially. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. But um, I feel like they wanted to do something because their 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 personal finances were unaffected, mm -hmm. so they wanted to try to help the restaurant by helping you know, the Rumsey ER or right. um, the Staten Island University labor and delivery. So we were getting calls like that frequently mm -hmm. in the beginning. And then, um, and then we too would donate meals to a different nursing home or hospital each week. But then we realized this was going to be going on for a really long time. Right. You know, at first, you know, they were telling us, well, just help us flatten the curve, you know, and, and I, I was thinking, all right, this is going to be short term. And we were feeding everybody we couldn't. And so listen, we got to hunker down. We don't know what the future holds. We stopped doing that. And we were just, you know, 
really just paying attention to every nickel and dime that came in, making sure our utilities were paid. Mm-hmm. We were very fortunate. I mean, I know that they had uh, moratoriums on um, shutting off your electric and shutting off your gas. And I know some people were very opportunistic and just stopped paying, you know, uh, even if they were able to. So, you know, we, we were very fortunate in that respect. So over the course of the year, you know, I can't even count how many times the rules and restrictions changed for restaurant owners and you're touching on this. How were you able to successfully navigate the challenges of the past year and what was the hardest to overcome? The, the, the thing that stands out to me was the December 12th closing when they closed indoor dining for two months because, you know, having been a bartender prior to owning a restaurant, you live for the last two weeks of December for Christmas tips, uh, bartenders, servers. And I said, you know, this could only come from a man who has never worked for a tip Mm -hmm. to make that decision to close at that time, especially when he was always quoting, we follow the science, we follow the science. And days, just days prior, they were saying that they had linked uh, restaurant infections to 3% of the cases and they linked um, home parties and things to 70% of the infections. Mm-hmm. So I knew then that, that uh, they weren't following the science. He was closing things on a whim. And so that was really difficult. And also, you know, uh, the outdoor dining and then giving people permission to build structures into the street. You know, you, you'd have to wonder, like, is it really worth the effort? You know, mm-hmm. we're in the Northeast. I mean, how, how much of the year can you really eat out? Mm-hmm. You know, even even today in April, like today is too cold to eat out in New York City. Mm-hmm. It's maybe 55 degrees. You'd have to wear a coat. It wouldn't be comfortable. So, you know, by saying, oh, we're making outdoor dining a permanent part of uh, the New York landscape, it's not it's not helping with, with, with us still at 50 percent indoor dining. Mm-hmm. While the rest of the state is at 75 percent, there's been no outbreaks statewide linked to restaurants when they went to 75%, yet they still have the city at 50. Mm-hmm. Infuriating. I want to focus on something positive. And the okay. last time you were <laughs> on the show, you explained how passionate you are about owning and operating Jimmy Max restaurant. And I want to know why is that? And I assume it has to do with the people in the community. Without a doubt. I, I, I love going to work. I love you know having a conversation with um, the firemen that come to the bar, the policemen that come to the bar, the families that come to the restaurant. You know, I've watched kids like you grow <laughs> up, you know, <laughs> yeah. my, um, uh, so I, I, I'll watch children come to the restaurant in, in an infant carrier for their first visit. And then before long, they're sitting in a high chair and they're eating a little chopped up ravioli or some capellini, you know, making mm-hmm. a mess. And then, you know, you watch that child make this communion. Maybe they have a communion party at the restaurant and, you know, you become, you know, part of the fabric of their lives. You know, really, really love knowing more about people, what they do for a living, you know, what they do for pastimes. It's, it's lovely. And, and, I, and by doing that, I kind of know who the plumber in the neighborhood is, who's the electrician in the neighborhood, who can put a roof on, who can re-sand your floors. So I've, I've become a little bit of a resource in that you know, in, in forwarding that information to people, you know, the more you find out about people, you dig past the, uh, the, you know, the first initial layer where, you know, people not in depth. So I, I do do, I am very much a people person. And, uh, I guess that's what keeps me going. Yeah. You said it so well, like Staten Island is certainly a small town in a big city. So 
how would you describe Staten Island to people who might not be familiar with the borough? Your first trip to Staten Island, depending on what the Staten Island Expressway looks like, you know, if it was bumper to bumper traffic, it might give you a, a distaste for it because we are very, we have a half a million people that live here now. The roads that are here, except for the expressways, were made during the revolution, you know, and uh, the paths, they, you know, we're, we're not formed on a grid. Some mm -hmm. of the streets make incredibly bizarre turns that might have been a big tree that was in the way at one time or a big rock. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we didn't keep up with the development, the road systems. Mm -hmm. But that being said, um, there is definitely something about that. I think the um, people living on Staten Island, it's, it's mostly generational. Mm -hmm. There are many generations, myself included, my grand, all four of my grandparents were born on the north, north shore of Staten Island. Mm -hmm. my, both, both my parents as well, now my, myself and all my kids, and now two grandsons <laughs> born <laughs> on the north shore of Staten Island. So, and it also is very um, provincial in that the north shore of Staten Island thinks it's the greatest and the south shore of Staten Island might think they're the greatest while well, Mid-Island, you know, <laughs> thinks that they have it. So in those respects, there's a, a lot of pride that goes into Staten Island neighborhoods, you know, whether it's Westerly or West Brighton or Princess Bay, you know, there's a lot of pride in um, where you reside. Uh, absolutely, without a doubt. I have to ask, what are some things you're looking forward to in the future? Uh, for me, like I have nieces who are in elementary school right now, and I would love for them to experience making pizza at Jimmy Max at some point. And I'm really hopeful that'll happen in the near future as we, you know, hopefully get beyond this pandemic. So what are you looking forward well, to? I, I, to tell you the truth, I'm really looking forward to a busy bar with the Yankees playing in the seventh game of the world series. And everybody is like glued to the TV and, you know, emotions are running so high on every pitch, every ball, every strike, every hit, every out, you know, it was, we were closed for the Super Bowl this year the indoor dining was canceled through February 12th. So the Super Bowl came and went without having, you know, anybody in the place. So I am looking forward to a, a bustling bar scene again, you know, to watch sports. Hopefully the Yankees will get out of the, seller they're in the they're in last place right now but you know we're, we're primarily a yankee bar um you know giant fans a lot of giant fans too so i do look forward to that and, and even having a full dining room mm -hmm. and having my staff come back you know we are operating with like three servers maybe five bus people and a lot of phone people right now but i feel like the this, the government has incentivized staying home by, by extending. And, and believe me, I, I know there are people that are in dire need of the unemployment benefits, but where there's work to be had, people aren't hurrying back from what I can tell. Mm -hmm. As long as they got a check coming in, they can you know, make a living staying home. You know, I, yeah, to your point, like it, it is wise to be prudent about reopening and bringing people together. But when people are isolated, they lose that sense of community that we've known so well, especially at your restaurant. So when you look back on this past year, is there anything else you want to add from your perspective as a longtime restaurant owner on the island? Well, I, I am I am praying that people come back indoors when the, when the restrictions are released. Because what I've noticed, even at 50%, Monday through Thursday nights, the dining room's empty. So people aren't coming out midweek. Uh, I am busy on the weekends. I won't lie, we're very busy. We had a table wait both Friday and Saturday this week. 
but I'm hoping that people's habits haven't changed where they're just going to stay home and, and order in, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which has been the case. Well, I mean, and as I said, I'm still doing well, but I like when people are in the place, you know, and, yeah. then, and then that will allow us to employ additional people. But until that time, we're, you know, kind of stuck. Mm. Um, I, I am hopeful that with the vaccine, everybody getting vaccinated, that people will feel comfortable going out. But I do know that some elderly people still, even with the vaccine, aren't excited about coming out. I hope that that goes away. Well, we'll see where we are in a year from now. Maybe I'll be able to be at the bar having this interview with you right next to me. That, that would, be, would be fabulous. Thanks again for taking the time to speak with me. It was my pleasure. I love it, Patty. Thank you for having me. Now, we are proud to bring you our local Hero of the Month, a segment made possible with support from Tom and Suzanne Crimmins of Tom Crimmins Realty. In this installment, we introduce you to NYPD Chief Frank Vega, a true local hero dedicated to building strong community ties and ensuring public safety all across Staten Island. Assistant Chief Frank Vega was appointed Staten Island's Borough Commander in December 2020, the highest-ranking officer on the island. He joined the New York City Police Department in 1991 and started his career in Queens. But Staten Island has been his family's home for nearly three decades, where he and his wife raised four children. Their oldest son followed Chief Vega's footsteps into a career with the NYPD, and his daughter is a nurse. He says his two younger children also plan to pursue careers in public service. The chief said that his family has inspired him to measure policing differently. Instead of focusing on metrics, he prefers to cultivate authentic relationships with the people he serves. You know, but once you start going around life talking about numbers, you know, the average person in the community doesn't want to hear nothing about those numbers. They want to hear what's going on in their block and how we can make life for them that much better. Vega is known around the borough as being a true professional to his members, too, doing things large and small to promote their well-being from participating in major training initiatives aimed at building resiliency to taking time to visit those who work on the holidays. Chief Vega explained that he approaches each conversation, whether with the public or fellow officers, with an open mind and positive spirit. You know, I don't have all the answers. You know, uh, I, I assure you some of the greatest ideas of the next generation are, are going to be, you know, from a rookie cop who's, you know, just came out of the academy, who's now walking somewhere on Port Richmond Avenue, you know, you know, with, 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 800 great ideas in his head, but if nobody, you know, opens up their ears to listen to them, they'll, they'll never get out of them. They'll never get out of them. And they'll be bottled up for his entire career and will never, will never become a better agency. Insiders said Vega's ability to exercise humility and put people first is a recurring theme in his leadership style, a style that ultimately sets the tone for policing on Staten Island. And while he's continually looking at ways to improve community relations, he knows it all starts with promoting the countless acts of heroism that are performed regularly by NYPD officers. A positive mindset and a focus on safety and community that ultimately helps make a difference on the streets of the borough. That's why Chief Vega is our local hero of the month. There's so, I mean, I, I could go on with these stories for days and hours. And, and what was beautiful about, about my current role, as you know, is I, I have the opportunity now to tell these stories. You know, I, I could be the spokesperson, you know, for all the heroic work that they do each and every day. And finally, in case you missed it, in our last edition of On SI, 
we spoke with Allison Cohen of the Staten Island Jewish Community Center about the success the center is having with its COVID-19 vaccination program. In particular, its outreach to a specific segment of the population in the borough. So this all kind of came about when we saw early this year a need in our community for more of a centralized vaccine appointment system because it was very hard for people, especially seniors, to get vaccine appointments. A lot of appointments were online. Um, It was hard for people with disabilities to access vaccine appointments. So this is kind of what we do on a day-to-day basis. These are the groups of people we deal with. So we realized that it was really on us to jump in and help these people make the appointments. Cohen said in addition to hosting its own vaccination sites and pop-ups, the center is helping to coordinate appointments at Richmond University Medical Center and other locations. That'll do it for this edition of On SI. A thank you to Stephen Kane, James McBratney, and Chief Frank Vega, and Tom and Suzanne Crimmins. Please check out our website at onsi.nyc and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We feature stories that matter to locals. Again, if you have one you'd like to share, email it to us at stories at onsi.nyc. Until next time, be well.